Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey, and this week we have Laura Roder, a strong supporter of the Bootstrapping Club. Laura's social media scheduling tool, Meet Edgar, is proudly bootstrapped in a market that has some very well-funded competitors like Hootsuite. So why start a business when your biggest competitors have so much more cash to throw around? In a David and Goliath approach, Laura is convinced that being small and bootstrapped is an advantage when your competitors are big and funded. In this Boss Europe 2018 talk, she explains some of the advantages of being the little guy and how your agility to change can outweigh however much money your competition has. Happy listening. So I want to tell you some about me uh, and my company, Meet Edgar. Um, As Mark alluded to, I recently started another company called Ropeg in the developer tool space, but it's brand new and I don't really have any lessons learned yet, so I'll focus today's talk on on Meet Edgar. Uh, I plan to be very divisive during this talk for bootstrapped versus funded companies. I'm really trying to start a war at the the business of software. I am am pro-bootstrap, so... That's the uh, point of view I'll be sharing. So Edgar is about four years old. We have about four million annual reoccurring revenue. Uh, we are bootstrapped. Bootstrapped in our case means self-funded bootstrapped. I took some of the profits in my previous business, ended up being about 200K in the first year and put that towards uh, Edgar to fund it until it became profitable on its own. I just point that out because bootstrap can mean a lot of different things, and I don't want someone who's doing a hardcore true bootstrapping where you earn a dollar and then spend a dollar to look at us and say, how did they grow so fast in the first year? That's part of the secret to how we grew so fast in the first year. We did have some some money to play with. It's a social media scheduling and automation tool, Uh, so that means we help small businesses organize and automate all their social media marketing to Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, We have some very well-funded competitors. So uh, our biggest competitor is Hootsuite. And when I say competitor, we do compete with them directly for customers. When we ask people who they're comparing us to, they often say Hootsuite. Uh, When we pull people who've left, some of our customers when they leave do switch to Hootsuite. Hootsuite has raised $300 million. It's a lot of money. Very different from where we are. Uh, Yet, we're still alive and and profitable and happy, so I know that it's possible, and I'm here talking to you today to share some tactical strategies that you can use in your startup uh, to compete with such a big company. Uh, Another thing that's relevant about us is we are 100% self-serve, which is a really, really great model for a bootstrap company, which I'll talk more about. So we don't have a sales team. Uh, We don't do any kind of custom work. No one has a special plan or anything like that. Uh, Actually, we keep it crazy simple. We only, we don't even have different plans. Everyone everyone pays us the same amount. Uh, Everyone's on the same plan. So why am I so into uh, Bootstrap SaaS? I love the business model of Bootstrap SaaS because it's super, super sustainable. Because you're bootstrapped, you have to be 
profitable, right? If you're losing money, your company's just going to go under. And the cool thing about being profitable is it really allows you to ride those ups and downs that we all know come in any business. Uh, obviously, if you're more profitable, that's going to be easier than if you're less profitable. But uh, in 2018, there have been some big changes in the social media landscape. Uh, we lost some of our functionality as a tool due to API changes. We did lose a chunk of our customer base because of that. But we have a very, very predictable revenue. So it's not an ideal situation, but we can survive it just fine because we have that very predictable amount of revenue, the beauty of reoccurring revenue, right, coming in every month. Um, and our expenses are well below that revenue. Also, it's really easy to change your expenses since, as we all know, in a SaaS business, uh, the team is going to be the vast majority of your expenses. So it's not what anyone's looking for. But if you do ever need to make layoffs, that is always, it's, it's a strategy that you can always use as a profitable SaaS business to keep yourself afloat until you, know, you can get things into a, a more sustainable position. You also have so much flexibility as a bootstrap company. You can keep things small. You can grow. You can choose to raise money down the road. You have a lot of flexibility with your lifestyle as a founder. And I think this community, I have a lot of conversations with, like, I keep hearing people talk about, how do you deal with having a life and the time zone difference between the US and the UK and then your kids' schedule? Like, people here, one of the reasons I resonate with this community is it's not just what's your profit margin, what's the bottom line, you know, how much money can you raise in three months? I know that this community is really interested in our businesses supporting a better life and having businesses that are really helping our customers. And I mean, the math of being bootstrapped means that you and your co-founders own probably all the business, right? And then that gets really lucrative as it becomes larger and it becomes profitable. And you have an asset you can sell and once you're at a certain size, even a crappy sale where you don't get a huge multiple, you know, if we sold today for one times ARR, that's $4 million, I get all of it. Pretty sweet. <laughs> I like that. So, and, and I know that there are lots of businesses here that have done the same thing that I've done of creating a bootstrap business that has been able to compete uh, with large competitors. I talked to someone the other day and I said, you know, what are you like in your marketplace? Are, are there a bunch of bigger players? And he said, oh yeah, they're all, they're all publicly traded companies, our competitors. And his is a relatively small company that's been really stable and has been around for a long time. I know there's one person companies in here that have existed for years and years with really well-funded competitors. So I'm not some sort of crazy outlier in this. Uh, why is it? Possible. So, you know, if you don't believe it's possible just from me telling you I did it, it's possible. Let's talk about why. Because a lot of people, their initial impression, well, one, the first thing is like, well, why doesn't Hootsuite just build that, right? They have $300 million. Why would they not just build your tool and copy it and just eliminate you? And if you saw uh, the talk from TransferWise, he explained very clearly why. So, someone asked him a question. They said, okay, well, you've been talking about the banks, but what about the other tools that are like TransferWise? Because there's a few smaller tools out there that essentially do, you know, have the same model and do the same thing. And he's like, 
we don't care about those tools. We care about the banks because they're looking, they're a large company. They want to compete with that 90% of the business that the banks have. They don't care about the 0 .0 whatever percent that their small, you know, bootstrapped or small funded competitors have. So that's why the really big competitors actually don't care about you at all. So in our case, you know, we've proven so far that we're in a $4 million business. As far as Hootsuite's concerned, that's what we are. Let's say we can get to like 20. That's, that's still really tiny to them. And to think of all the work they have to go through to launch and market this product that's the exact same as ours and like add that to their business line for maybe 4 million, you know, maybe it's like max 10 or 20 million. It's just, it's not worth their time for all the hassle. And in a lot of ways, the bigger your competitors are, the better because the less they care about you. And we do see a lot more head-to-head -head type of competition from our small competitors, the companies that have come out, I call them the knockoffs, the companies that have come out since we launched that do the same thing that we do. They're the ones that are like all up in our business, looking at exactly what we're doing, you know, building the exact same features, making things look exactly the same, because they're looking at us being like, ooh, what can, it is viable for them to steal, to try to steal one million or whatever of our market share, because that means a lot to them, but it means absolutely nothing to Hootsuite. Uh, and you know, another thing people say is like, well, anyone, anyone could just come in and build it, right? These big competitors, like even if they're not that interested, it would just be so quick and easy for them. Why would they not just build it? This is just true for software, right? Anything, I mean, I'm sure every engineer in this room is the most talented and brilliant engineer that has ever existed. I think other people can build the same stuff that you can build. That's just kind of what I've seen. So none of us, none of us in the software, but like obviously there's, you know, Google's self-driving cars and things that take a lot more resources and maybe a few people of extraordinary intelligence, I'm not sure. Uh, in general, if you can build it, somebody else, like that's what's cool about software, right? Anyone, anyone can build it. So this idea that like, oh, well, a company with more resources could just build it, aren't you scared of that? It's like, yeah, that's just the reality. It's not something to be scared of. That's, that's the reality that we're all living in. Uh, another thing I've seen about huge companies is that they're very beholden to their existing clients and their existing infrastructure. So especially if they're an older company, they're often built uh, on tech that is older. Um, they can't change it because either they have their client agreements that don't allow them to change it or they have 50,000 customers they're not just going to go in and rebuild like everything. You know, those of you at larger companies know how uh, how painful that would be. So I've also come across a lot of legacy stuff that bigger companies have that you know is not what they would build in 2018, but they're kind of stuck with for a lot of reasons. Also, just taking any kind of risk once you're once you're that big, right? If your revenues are 50 million plus for you to be like let's play around with this new workflow because there's a tiny competitor and people kind of seem to like it. Like you don't want to risk your entire, your entire customer base. So yeah, what I've seen in the market is that large companies are often super uninterested in, in you as a small competitor. And 
the amazing thing about this bootstrap SaaS thing is that you don't have to be the biggest business and you're not trying to be the biggest business. So we are competing with Hootsuite directly in the sense that you know, some customers, some leads that are researching Hootsuite, we want them to research us and choose us. We are not competing with them in the sense of we are not trying to go public. We are not trying to raise $300 million. We are, they're you know, moving up market, going enterprise, huge contracts. That's the strategy they need to follow at their level. That's absolutely not our strategy. And that, that's where the freedom and the flexibility comes in. You can do that as a bootstrap company. You can say, I, my goal is for my company to be a $5 million company. I love having my team of 10 people. I don't want to grow it larger. We're going to hang out there. We're going to go gr grow gradually over the years. Like, that is great for you. Uh, and this idea that markets are winner take all, I was just trying to think of a single example for this presentation of a winner take all market, just looking around at the things that businesses and people buy, um, it's really, really hard to find an example uh, that's truly winner take all. I mean, there's search, but there's still even other search engines, right, that have small percentages of the market, even things like Uber. Uh, in Austin, where I lived, Uber was gone for a year because they wouldn't play along with the government, uh, and some local competitors came in, and. As of now, they're still there. Like, I probably wouldn't invest in them. I don't know how long they're going to stay around. But even a super hard to compete with company like Uber, where it's a double-sided marketplace, and they're literally willing to lose money on every single ride. Like, I would not. That's not what I would choose to enter. Even that, there's room for local competitors for various reasons, right? Because people don't like Uber. Maybe they have a better experience with a competitor or whatever. There's always room for competition. I, I think the only caveat is there, there are definitely some markets that as a bootstrapper are not great bootstrap businesses. Um, Double-sided marketplace is generally one of those. As a bootstrap company, that's really hard to do. Or uh, a company with a really, really long sales cycle is really hard to do as a bootstrapper. Or of course, anything that just, some things just require so much money to build the tech or build the hardware or whatever. You know, it just doesn't make sense for bootstrapping. But those aren't because of competitors. Those are just the nature of the business. So to structure this presentation, uh, in marketing, we have something called the four Ps. I think there's like a few marketers in here like me. Uh, the four Ps are product, price, place, and promotion. So I thought that would be a good framework to go through the four Ps and talk about how the tactics that we've used at Meet Edgar um, to address each of these areas against competitors. So the first P is product, uh, very relevant to the business of software. So I think what you have to think about for your product decisions in regard to competitors, one, you don't want to get in a you know, tit-for-tat feature situation. Um, I mean, I think that's just sort of general strategic advice for software, but obviously if a company is a lot older, has a lot more resources than you, that can be challenging. So something we've done is hone in on what is that USP, what is that core difference that we're going to judge our product and our feature decisions by? 
So for us, that's saving time because there's a lot of different functionality in social media marketing tools. Some of them are listening tools, some of them are customer service tools. We've decided we're not gonna build a feature unless it helps you save time. Uh, so when we look at different things we can do, because people ask us for everything. Um, I don't know if your customers do this too. Our customers are like, why don't you guys build something that posts like a feed of my Facebook ads to Slack? That's sort of like social media. Actually, I don't know, would that help save you time? I don't know. Any, anyway, so our criteria for looking at all these feature requests are would this, would this help our customer shave time off their social media marketing daily activities? That's really important for getting focused in what we're going to build. Uh, another choice we've made is not to have mobile apps. Now, I would rather have mobile apps, right? If we had unlimited resources, that would be on my list. It's definitely something customers ask for. But what we found is it's a nice to have, and it's not a deal breaker in our space for our customers. And the resources that it would require to build and maintain mobile apps, we'd either have to add engineering teams or spend a bunch of money outsourcing that. It's not, you know, to the customer, it's like, eh, I'd like to have a mobile app to a software development company. That's a huge layer of complexity, building everything that we built for the web for apps. So you have to be realistic about your own constraints and your own capacity, and you can't just, you can't just build everything your customers ask for, right? I mean, this is true in general, but I think if you're a smaller company, it can be really tempting to say, oh, the competitors have apps, people talk about apps, we have to you know, put it at the top of the list, we have to do that. Um, for us, we feel like apps doesn't really meet that time-saving criteria. I'm not saying we'll never introduce it, it's just not at the top of the list for us. Uh, and the other thing about building your product is we all know that huge teams are not necessarily more effective than really small teams, right? Everyone has had this experience. I mean, that's why there's so much talk about divide your teams into two pizzas, no more than six people. Uh, and we've all <laughs> seen that software. For me, it's iTunes. Whenever I open iTunes, I'm like, they have thousands of engineers. What are they doing? I can't find a video that I bought. This is terrible, right? We all see these huge companies and we're like, what are all these engineers doing? And I think we've all had that fantasy when your dev team grows and you're like, oh, I remember when I just did this myself? It was so much easier. I should just go back to just me and I could get everything done so much faster. Um, which is like a bit of a fantasy, but it's also true that one person can be super productive and there's incredible <laughs> startups that are one-person businesses, or a lot of them that are just one person on the development team. So on the one hand, yes, you can't go crazy building something as big and complex as maybe your competitors have. On the other hand, it is always amazing to me what kind of products a really tiny software team can build uh, that are often <laughs> extremely similar to competitors that have you know, been around for years, have huge amounts of funding, have huge engineering teams. So the whole product area and being small and being bootstrapped might not be as much of a constraint as you think. And of course, this is where it's important to look at your product, to look at your marketplace, look at what your customer's asking for, and say, am I able to build that product that meets their needs 
without raising $20 million, you know, without that 50-person engineering team. So the next P is price. Uh, we do not have a free plan. We do not have any kind of freemium model. Uh, I think that bootstrapped and freemium can be a really lethal combination uh, because free customers don't pay you and bootstrap companies really need to make money so we can be <laughs> profitable. So those things are really hard to work out together. I think a lot of people don't realize what a tiny, tiny, tiny conversion rate there is between free plans um, and paying plans. I'd love to find more data on this. The data I've been able to find, it's uh, everything I've seen is below 5%. Sometimes it's like way below 5% because it's just a different customer base signing up for your free plan and your paid plan. That's a lot of money your company has to spend. And I think it can be scary not having a free plan when your competitors do. Um, and I think <laughs> lots, if not all, of our competitors have a free plan, from the big ones to the small ones. Uh, and people still sign up for our software. Here's the cool thing. The people looking for free software don't sign up for our software. <laughs> yeah, you follow? Like, I'm kind of cool. They can go somewhere else. I want the people looking to pay. For a solution. So there are companies that have done this. So MailChimp is a company that I hugely admire. Uh, they've grown to a huge level being bootstrapped. They do have a free plan. They introduced it when they were, I think, nine years into their journey. Um, and they really felt like they had the resources for it. And the interesting thing about MailChimp is their free plan is just free advertising for them. When someone's on their free plan, they're sending out emails with a MailChimp link at the bottom. Uh, my company doesn't have any version of that. Our free users, you know, maybe they would tell people about us, but it doesn't have any sort of viral marketing situation for a free plan. And you know, this is another thing you have to be really careful of, is blindly copying the strategy of your competitors or just blindly copying strategies that you read about online. Because a lot of the startup books and blog posts and stuff is written for funded companies. Uh, I, I might have mentioned this when I spoke a few years ago. I remember thinking it was really funny when the term unit economics became this trendy thing, maybe about two years ago, where people were like, oh, there's this new thing you need to think about in your startup. It's called unit economics. And it means that every customer should make you money instead of losing you money. And they were like, oh, wow, like, cool. Like, let's, let's figure out what our unit economics are. So as a bootstrap company, right, you can't lose money on every customer. Um, as a funded company, you can. And that's a very, very, very common strategy to grow a funded company is to know how much, hopefully you at least know your unit economics and you know how much you're losing on every customer. Um, that's a common thing to do, right? So when you're reading all the startup advice and people are telling you, you absolutely have to have a free plan or you absolutely have to do this and that, you really have to think it through, do the math, right? Figure out what are the implications of this for a small company like mine that's maybe going to have trouble um, having the resources to support this. The other thing we've done as far as pricing goes is be more expensive than a lot of our competitors. So um, there's, 
you know, obviously our tool is different and better than all the other tools, but if you are just someone who doesn't know as much about social media, there are some tools out there that you would compare to ours that are $15, $20 a month. Uh, we're $49 a month. So that's significantly uh, more expensive. That's, that's twice as expensive. We offer something that is worth well and beyond that $49. Obviously, a lot of people agree with us. Uh, and when I've looked at different price points, the math of lowering our price uh, would be very challenging. We'd have to raise our conversion rate quite a bit. I mean, that's something I think, you know, it's a strategy you might want to enact. You just have to test it out. You just have to see. But that's where you have to do the math for your own company to say, not just say, oh, they're 20 bucks a month, so we have to be 20 bucks a month too. If you dropped your price to 20 bucks a month, would you have to, I mean, Here's the thing, you know that you need two and a half more customers, right? If you're 20 bucks a month for every one you need, if you're 50 bucks a month, is all your marketing supporting that? You know, this idea that you'll just get double the customers because you go from 50 to 20 usually isn't true, obviously depends on a lot of different factors. Um, and these are the types of things that tank bootstrap businesses all the time, right? I think that's why whenever we go to these conferences, there's always at least one speaker who says, raise your prices, raise your prices, raise your prices, because so much SaaS, uh, the, the math is never gonna work out with how low the price is. Uh, I also think it's very interesting seeing companies that survive against free competitors. I think a lot of us in this room know uh, ProfitWell and Bear Metrics. Are we familiar with those products? Oh, okay. Uh, so ProfitWell and Bear Metrics, uh, feed, read from your Stripe, account, your Stripe account and tell you your MRR and ARR and churn and, and stuff like that. Uh, ProfitWell is a free product. Their business model is to sell you some other things once you're using the product. Um, Bear Metrics is not a free product. Their prices range from, I don't know, 20 to like 500 a month. Um, the products, in my opinion, we use both of them at my company, are very, very, very similar. ProfitWell is a very strong product. It's totally free. Um, I just said that we pay for it, so obviously Bear Metrics does have a feature that we find valuable and we find worth the money. So they're a business that exists despite having a competitor that's a very similar product that's 100% free. You know, It's not like free plan and then you pay more. It's just straight up free. And I think... Researching a marketplace, I think a lot of people would get scared off and say, well, there's a free competitor. How are we ever going to possibly launch to that? But your product is not going to be exactly the same. So as long as there's anything different about your product that people are willing to pay for, you can have a space in the market. And Bear Metrics has really, has really proven that. The next P is place. So the four P's are a little bit old school. Place used to mean where people could buy your product. Place means distribution. So the implications of this for SaaS is that, I mean, something so obvious, we overlook it. You're going direct to consumer, right? People are finding you on the internet, and they're buying through your website. That's not always true with enterprise sales, right? Sometimes it's through 
um, various vendors. I guess sometimes that could be true with small businesses as well. But this factor that you get to go direct to consumers is actually a huge factor in your favor of being a small company, right? And again, what's cool about SaaS and software, you're not trying to make deals with Target for shelf space, right? People can just find you right away. And it might be easier to buy your solution than a larger company solution, uh, a, you know, my company, like I said, is all self-serve. So you don't have to talk to a salesperson. You don't have to do a demo. Uh, some other social media software, you have to run through all those hoops, which our customer base is just not interested in. So this is another one of those strategic tactics that's just a really good uh, match for Bootstrap SaaS. Don't, don't have all those hoops to jump through, right? Use the power of the internet to let people buy from you directly. That alone can be a great differentiating factor between you and a competitor. Um, another thing to think about, you know, I said freemium and bootstrapped don't go together. Long sales cycles and bootstrapped also generally don't go together or really complex sales cycles or you have to get buy-in from 10 people at the organization. That's one of those areas where a well-funded team often does have a big advantage against you because they just have a lot of humans they can throw at that problem. They have a lot of money to take people to the box seat or whatever <laughs> enterprise sales people do. Uh, golf, right, golfing, I don't know. Um, so that is something to look at. And that can be, I mean, even that can be your point of differentiation. Maybe you're in, in an industry where that would be really disruptive for your industry to say, Hey, you don't have to go through this. We don't have to go through this song and dance and this year-long, this year-long process. Like, let's let's just sell this directly and, and get this done and, and get you up and running. You know, not not everyone, not all the clients love the year-long process either. Uh, and the last P is promotion. So this is like big winner for bootstrap companies. This is where you can really compete with well-funded companies really easily, really effectively, uh, thanks to the internet. So we're so used to the internet that we forget that it's this really amazing place where we just create content and it is treated equally to the content that everyone else creates, right? Uh, that you can just get right in front of people without with paying maybe a little money for paid advertising or often paying no money. Um, and I want to talk about some of the promotional strategies that take time rather than money that have been really effective for us. Uh, one that we do a ton of is podcasts. So I'm a guest on podcasts that talk to our target market. Um, if you Google Meet Edgar podcast lead pages, we ran a post um, on lead pages blog with our whole uh, template and system for getting this done, the emails that we send to uh, pitch ourselves as guests on podcasts. This is free besides your time. It's super effective because you're going straight to your target audience. Uh, there's not a lot of prep involved. You just show up and talk. So in that sense, it takes a lot less time than something like writing a guest post, uh, which can also be a super effective strategy, by the way. 
Uh, this is just so easy for anyone to take this strategy and run with it. Podcasts, there's tons of them. They really need guests. Pitch yourself to be on the podcast. They want you. They want you to talk free right in front of your target audience. Uh, a similar one is public speaking, like I'm doing today, right? So I didn't have to pay for this, right? And I get to be here talking to all of you about how fabulous my software is. Um, you know, I imagine for TransferWise, that was a bit of an incentive to be here. This seems like a really, really good target market for them. I think a lot of people here are um, some level of influencer with a community and a social media following. This guy can come talk here for an hour, give us a ton of value, and maybe create some new evangelists for TransferWise. Um, having people write reviews of your product is another one that's been really successful for us is a super powerful strategy that you can so easily leverage with no money. So you can do an affiliate program where they have an affiliate link and uh, they're getting paid for commissions. You can give them free product in exchange for writing a review of that free product on their blog. Uh, or you can give them absolutely nothing and just ask them to write a review because you think their audience will be interested if that's relevant for your audience. Uh, we've done a lot of that at Meet Edgar. We just have an email. After you sign up to be a customer, there's an email in our sequence. Now we have a referral program, so now we do say, you know, use a referral link um, in your review, but that's new. But we didn't give any kind of incentive. We're just like, hey, maybe your audience would be interested in what your experience with Meet Edgar has been. We're a small bootstrap company. It really helps us out. If you would write a review, we'll help share it and promote it, and then our audience will get that link back to your blog, help spread the word about your business. That has been super, super effective for us. Um, if you just did reviews, podcasts, guest posts, I mean, if you just do one of those, if you're not doing them already, uh, if you do all three of them, I think you'll see some significant growth in your business. This is all stuff that's so easy for any team size to execute. And you're getting the same exposure that Hootsuite gets when they're on a podcast, right? And I love doing this stuff. And, you know, we often look at, um, again, in the TransferWise talk, you talked about how when marketing teams, when stuff stops working, they say, let's get on TV. It's kind of like, oh, we don't know what else to do. Or I feel like transport ads is another one in that category. So I think we look at big companies doing this stuff, and we're like, oh, wow. How, you know, they're all over the tube, or I'm seeing them all over TV. Uh, people who run these sort of campaigns know how ineffective they can be how hard they are to track or impossible to track, whereas you can often get actual, you know, 100 customers from, well, that would be a really big podcast for you to be like 100 customers from one episode. 100 leads, yes, and maybe over time, 100 customers, because unlike a tube ad, they exist on the internet forever. And people who find that podcast listen to the back episodes and they find you, you know, at this point, I've definitely done over 100 podcast interviews, I'm not sure exactly how many, uh, over the past four years. And those just live on, on the internet, right? When people discover those podcasts, they have a chance of hearing me, hearing about Meet Edgar, Googling to find out more. Same with reviews, same with guest posts. And what I've seen is when you do this stuff over time, 
it does build up in that way. So a TV campaign might seem really glamorous, but as soon as you stop paying, the ad goes away, right? You get no effects later, unless you do one of those ads where you have a really good jingle and people remember it for the rest of their lives. So if I ever did a TV ad, definitely have a jingle. Um, it also brings me to something that you need to be careful of with promotion, which is paid advertising. So paid advertising uh, on Google or on Facebook, sometimes you are going head to head with a competitor, right? You are literally having a price war over the same keywords. Um, as you can imagine, that might sometimes end badly for you or not work out for you. Uh, it's definitely worth testing because that's not always the case. Um, or sometimes even if it's expensive, you can do it at such a low volume that it's a kind of expensive that, that you can handle. Um, but yeah, you have to think of, is it, the thing about ads is, is they're mutually exclusive, right? Someone has n the number one spot and the other person does not. It's not like that with guest posts or reviews or podcasts, right? Those are discovery things. So you have to look at your promotional channel and say, am I going, you know, am I bidding against them, right? Am I going head to head for something where there's only one spot? Um, that's probably not the best strategy to pursue. If your competitor has $300 million, they can probably outspend you, just a guess. So before we go to Q&A, uh, I wanted to wrap up with the emotional side of this. So when I was chatting with Mark about this topic, uh, we talked about how you can be really insecure as a bootstrap founder because at least for me anyway, sometimes, sometimes I feel like it's not as cool as, uh, as raising the $300 million. Uh, it's definitely true that my company doesn't get the same sort of respect or accolades in those circles, right? But those aren't the circles that I'm in. That's not the game that I'm playing. Um, you know, there's this term lifestyle, lifestyle business. I remember if anyone listened to um, season two of the, the startup podcast where the women started the dating app and this was a big thing that happened to them is one of their investors were like, I think this is a lifestyle business. And that was this crushing blow. It was like, you guys are not a startup. You're a lifestyle business. That's always a little funny because, you know, lifestyle business means a business <laughs> that allows you to have a great lifestyle. How this became an insult, I have, I have no idea. Um, a business that allows me to have a great life kind of seems like the reason that we all started a business. That's why I started a business. Um, but people will throw that at you as an insult or, you know, you're not growing as fast as you could be if you're not raising money, uh, which is true, right? Usually you grow much faster. Hopefully, you raised all that money, hopefully you're gonna grow faster. Uh, but growing fast is not, is not the only game in town. So you have to really, I think, set your own goals for what success looks like to you and not play that comparison game. And also, it's okay to want a small team, for example. I mean, it's a funny thing because you hear people at bigger companies be like, oh, you know, I really miss the days when we were six people or we were 20 people. Like, you're allowed to choose that. You're allowed to say, yeah, actually, it's, it's kind of awesome 
being six people and I love everyone that I work with and this business doesn't feel stressful and I know that we're not gonna grow as much as if we were trying to hire 50 people and that's okay, you know? And you have to be aware of all the stuff you read on the internet about the hustle and you know, expecting every business to grow 100% month over month, week over week. I don't know what the like, latest growth rate you're supposed to hit is, but you read a lot of stuff that is talking about the Instagrams, right? It was mentioned, oh, Instagram had 13 people sold for a billion dollars. Now, don't get me wrong, I would love to have a company that sold for a billion dollars with 13 people, they're an insane outlier. You know, they're the example because they are the one example of when that happened. Those of us that have been in this world for a while know that most businesses that raise money um, get acquired or just fail. <laughs> it's like, what's a nicer way to say that? They, they fail, that's okay. Like, we've run some of those businesses, that's, that's cool too. Um, but, the idea that if you're not playing that game, you know, you're not a real entrepreneur, you're not a real business person, you're some sort of failure that should be doing something different is, is total BS. And that's why I said I was going to be very divisive um, and on team pro bootstrapper, which of course I think if you want to raise money, cool, but I just want to be here to be a voice for those of you who don't want to raise money and say, it can be a really, really awesome way to go. Thank you. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you. Questions? Steve. Great talk. You were speaking my language from beginning to end. I wanted to say amen a couple of times. <laughs> uh, like your business, we're also very similar, one price for everybody, we try to do everything self-service. Occasionally people ask us to do demos, live demos via Zoom or Skype or whatever. I don't know what to say. What do you do in this situation? Um, we usually will set up a call with people if they ask. Um, that, always hasn't, that hasn't always been the case. Um, now we have a bit larger customer service team. We feel like we have the capacity. When we didn't do them, we just said, sorry, we're a small team. We're only able to offer email support. Super happy to answer any, any of your questions. Um, or we can make you, you know, do it asynchronously sometimes. Like, we'll make you a little video. You know, maybe you just have the demo video that you send them, but you're like, we made you a little video to, to make a demo for you. Um, not even a question, I think just echoing the, uh, the sentiment there. I think it's very refreshing to hear um, you know, me coming from, some, uh, from a venture capital-backed environment. Um, you know, hearing this bootstrapped message is, is refreshing. I think you could, should actually even start a movement around it because um, there is a little bit of Kool-Aid around entrepreneurs need to raise venture capital and actually uh, there's a, you should think first. So uh, well done. Thank I've you. already got one. It's called Business of Software. <laughs> 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 um, actually, just, just on that, I, I really don't mind whether people are venture-backed or not. I, I think a lot of the people here and a lot of the companies here are independent, are entrepreneurial, are bootstrapped, self-funded, 
all sorts of different ways of, 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 of putting it, and I think um, that's okay. Venture capital is neither necessary nor evil. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of get religion in terms of, oh, you mustn't have venture, you mustn't have venture, or you have to have venture um, in order to, to go. But actually, I think you know, this is a movement about just trying to build nice software that people like and build great companies. Um, they can happen whether you're venture-backed or not. If you're venture-backed, you have more people involved in the decision-making. And the single function of money is to make a return, and that's okay. You just have to understand that when you're going in. So I'm not fighting for either side. I, I love everybody. I'm an equal <laughs> opportunity. I'm an equal opportunity insulter. Um, so and I ran back questions. David. Hi. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned that you're starting another business. I didn't quite catch the name, but you said you were going into the developer tool space, correct? Yeah. At the, at the moment, you're, you're dealing with presumably not terribly technical customers. So they're quite straightforward. Now, I also have developers as my customers, and they're hardest bunch of people in the world to sell to. So why are you doing that? <laughs> so, uh, that a good challenge. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I should say, they all think that they can implement in two weeks what you've spent 16 years perfecting. That's why they're, they're really hard to deal with. Well, I know, because when I'm at this conference, people come up to me and they're like, I checked out your software, um, but then I just built sort of a basic version <laughs> of it, and they're like, so why does anyone pay for your software? And I'm like, because not everyone's a software developer. <laughs> The answer to that. Uh, yeah, so the new company um, is called Ropig, R O P I G. Uh, it's a competitor to PagerDuty, so we're going up again against a very um, well funded incumbent. Um, like I said, it's like just getting off the ground, um, but we are looking for uh, product and development talent for it if you, uh, you want to talk to me about that. <laughs> If you enjoy these podcasts, we would love to hear your feedback. The best place to leave a review is Apple Podcasts, or you can get in touch with the team on Twitter at at BossConference. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.